Without a doubt, one of the most important words in Christianity is the word grace. Christians, rightly so, are obsessed with grace. As a matter of fact, we just sang what is most likely the most popular song ever written in the English language. Amazing grace. We love grace as Christians. This can even be seen in just simply how we name our churches. How many churches have the word grace in their name? You can go to any town in America and just Google churches, Google church and grace, and you're going to find all different denominations with grace in their name. Grace Community Church, Grace Bible Church, Grace Baptist Church, Grace Presbyterian Church, Grace Lutheran Church, Sovereign Grace Churches. Again, grace is very important to us. And this makes sense because grace is very important to our scriptures. Grace is perhaps the most important theme of all the Bible. Specifically, the grace of God as it is revealed and poured out through Jesus Christ. If the scriptures teach anything clearly about God, it's that they teach us that He is gracious, especially through His Son. And the rest of Ephesians chapter 2, as we continue to work through our sermon series, contains some of the most famous verses we have which have made this concept of grace so important to us. And so for the next two weeks, we're going to be talking an awful lot about grace. So as I said, if you haven't already, please open to Ephesians chapter 2. We are going to read verses 4 through 7 together. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. These four verses truly contain... Some very, very deep Christian truths. In fact, even John Chrysostom, who is probably the most ancient commentator we have on this text, is in the late 4th century, when commenting on this passage, said this, Truly there is need of the spirit and of revelation in order to understand the depth of these mysteries. Make no mistake about it, this is a deep, deep passage. But there is good news. Paul helps us out quite a bit with these deep, puzzling spiritual mysteries. Because if you maybe notice as we read through, there's this kind of awkward insertion in this passage. Something that almost seems out of place. What what some commentators have called a parenthesis or a side note, if you will. And this little side note that Paul gives to us essentially summarizes the ultimate meaning of this passage. Paul essentially takes a break from these deep spiritual mysteries to say, hey guys, here's what I'm trying to get across. And this little side note can be found at the very end of verse 5 and end of verse 6. Read verse 5 and 6 with me. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
Do you see that little phrase in there that just doesn't seem to fit? By grace you have been saved. I mean, let's read it. We could remove that for a second and listen how smoothly the sentence flows. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Do you see how smooth that flows? We have this awkward break in this text. And as a matter of fact, this, this what, what people call a parenthesis is so obvious that some commentators throughout history have even suggested that Paul didn't write it. That some later scribe who possessed these manuscripts added it in. Now, I don't, I don't believe that. I'm not teaching that to you today. But I just bring that up so we can see that throughout history, people have recognized this awkward break in the flow of the sentence. And that's why I love uh, the way that the King James Version prints this text. I don't know if anyone in here is using a King James. Most of our Bibles will put... Uh, little uh, dashes, hyphens, if you will, in the text. That's what the ESV at least does. It says, you've been made alive together with Christ, dash, by grace you have been saved, dash, and raise us up. The King James is one of the few that actually puts parentheses, parenthetical brackets. And that really, I think, is the better way in the English to print that text because that better shows that this really is a side thought. This really is breaking the flow of the sentence intentionally to give us a brief summary. In case you're not tracking with me, here's what I'm trying to communicate to you. By grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. So what does that mean for us today? That means that Paul has done all the heavy lifting for us. My job was made so easy this week because Paul tells us explicitly if there's anything you should get from these few verses we read, this is what it is. By grace you have been saved. Paul has identified for us the main idea, the thesis, if you will. So if you were to leave church and meet up with some of your friends today and they were to ask you, what did you learn in church today? This is the idea. By grace you have been saved. That's what this sermon is all about today. By grace you have been saved. And so what that leaves for us to do with the rest of our time is to see how these other verses ultimately teach that. Paul has told us what all of these verses are trying to say, that we've been saved by grace. And so let's just look at with the rest of our time, how do the other verses ultimately lead us to this big idea that we are saved by the grace of God? And we're going to have three points. There are three main ideas that these other verses communicate something to support this thesis. And we're going to see that by essentially just breaking down what Paul means by saved and what he means by grace. What does it mean to be saved, first and foremost? And then once we understand what salvation is, what does it mean to be saved by grace? What is salvation and what is grace? And so let's look at this first one. What does it mean to be saved by grace? Well, we can summarize this point number one, is that salvation is union with Christ. Salvation is union with Christ. What does it mean to be saved? It means that you have joined in union with Jesus Christ. There are many ways that we've seen this in the text. There are many ways, but Paul is ultimately, throughout these verses, communicating to us the importance of joining with Christ, of sharing in the life of Christ. He speaks as if Christ is the one who has sort of won salvation, and then we participate in that salvation with him. 
We join with Christ and then he communicates or he gives to us his salvation. Salvation is union with Christ. Salvation comes to us only when we are united to Christ. Let's see some of the different ways the text say that. Notice verse 5. Verse 4 identifies God being rich in mercy. And what does God do because of his mercy and his love? Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. Paul describes salvation first and foremost as being a kind of spiritual resurrection. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. We learned that last week. And he reiterated it for us this week. Even when you were dead, God came and raised you to life. He raised you up. He resurrected your soul. The same power of God that physically rose Jesus from the dead is the same power that works in us to spiritually raise us from the dead and one day physically also. So the first way we understand salvation is resurrection. We have been made alive. But notice, it doesn't just say that you've been made alive. You're not just resurrected. What does the text say? We have been raised together with Christ. Your resurrection, in other words, is not like this isolated thing, like you just resurrect. You are sharing Christ's resurrection he has been raised to life and you are then raised together with him. If Christ is not raised, you're still dead in your sins. You're not just resurrected, you're resurrected into his resurrected life. You are experiencing the resurrection of Christ. One way to think about this is, do you recall just a, a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, at the end of chapter 1, do you remember how Paul referred to the church as the body of Christ? This is where this metaphor is starting to st sort of make so much sense. Because you see, the way we generally understand the human body, although we understand it with much more, you know, uh, detail today than Paul did, but everyone even back then generally understood that the head is sort of the life of the body. Right? That's why we have expressions like cut off the head of the snake. Because a body cannot live without its head. The head is intelligence and life, and the head sort of communicates life to the rest of the body. You lose your head, you lose your life. And so the idea that we are the body of Christ means that if he is our head, then the head communicates life to the body. So because Christ is the head, and he is alive, and he is resurrected, when we join in a union with him, when we become part of his body, that head communicates life to its members. What happens to the head happens to the body. So when you join the body of Christ, you receive his resurrection. You receive his life. Salvation is receiving life and resurrection from Jesus Christ. But we don't just participate in Christ's resurrection. We even somehow mysteriously participate in his ascension as well. You see, Christ rose in two kind of different ways. He rose from the dead, and then he hung out with his, his disciples and just proved to them, hey guys, I'm alive, taught them. But then what else happened? He ascended to the right hand of God. And we talked on Easter how important that is. That was important in Ephesians chapter 1 to Paul's overall resurrection message. Christ did not just come back to earth. He then left earth and went to heaven. And it's amazing, Paul says that if you believe in Christ today, guess what you've done? You've gone to heaven already. Verse 6, 
Not only did he make us alive with Christ, verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. Do you see why I talked about these deep mysteries here? Here you all sit in Roswell, New Mexico in some blue padded chair. And Paul is teaching us in the present tense, not in the future tense, in the present tense, that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are not just seated in a blue chair in Roswell, New Mexico. You are seated with Christ in heaven. What does it mean to be saved? It means to be seated in the heavenly places with Christ. Three weeks ago, we briefly discussed a theological concept that we call the already but not yet. There's tons of different aspects of our salvation in Scripture that are spoken of in already but not yet terms. Meaning sometimes when the Bible addresses it, it's spoken of as already have happening to you. And then sometimes when the Bible talks about it, it talks about it as a future event. We saw this in Ephesians 1, which told us that we have received an inheritance in Christ. And then later on told us, through faith in Christ, we are awaiting the reception of our inheritance. All throughout the Bible, we have things like this. One Bible verse will say, if you believe, you are saved. Another Bible verse, Paul will talk about those of us who are being saved. Salvation is something that has both happened to you, but it's also something you're awaiting. The inheritance is something that in one way you've received, but in another way you're awaiting. And here Paul is telling us this amazing concept yet again of how our salvation is an already but not yet. Because you see, these realities he's talking about are actually going to physically happen. We actually will be physically resurrected from the dead. And on judgment day, those in Christ will physically ascend and be with him in heaven and will rule through him in heaven. We will be given authority and dominion and we will rule through him. So we will be physically raised and physically seated with Christ in the heavenly places. But Paul speaks of that has already, in some sense, haven't happened to you. You're already there. Because, why? Because salvation is union with Christ. If Christ is there and you're unified with Christ, where do you have to be? Wherever he is. You go where Christ goes. The body goes wherever the head takes it. If he's in the heavenly places, you're in the heavenly places. Because salvation is union with Christ. You are saved only through Christ. Only by believing and being united to Christ is salvation communicated to you. So what does it mean then for us today, during the not yet part, what does it mean for us to be seated in the heavenly places? That's kind of just pious spiritual talk, is it not? It sounds great. I really like the way it sounds. I'd love just to walk around Roswell and let people know, by the way, I want you to know that I am seated with Christ in the heavenly places. What does that mean? What does that look like for us in this life when we have not yet culminated that process? Well, it means more than one thing, but perhaps the most important thing to the book of Ephesians is this notion of how we have been spiritually transferred out of the world into another world. Paul just got done talking in the previous text that when we were dead in our sins, we were following the course of this world, slaves to the prince of the power of the air. So before salvation, you, you belonged to the world. You were of the kingdom of the world, and your leader was the leader of the world. And so what Paul is saying here is that in the same way that there's a parallel, you once were dead, but now you're alive, there's a second parallel. 
You used to be of the world. You used to follow the rules of the prince of the power of the air, but you now belong to another realm. You don't belong to the world anymore. You don't belong to Satan anymore. You don't belong to the world. Who do you belong to? To heaven. You belong to heaven. You are part of a new kingdom, which means you have a new master, which means you obey new rules. So what this means for us is we now walk according to heavenly principles, not worldly principles. Why? Because we don't belong to this world. We're in heaven already. That's our home. You've been seated there. Uh, one place that makes this crystal clear, turn to uh, Colossians chapter 3. Keep your marker here, but turn over just a couple books to Colossians chapter 3. By the way, as you turn there, just a side note. Colossians and Ephesians have incredibly similar theology. Uh, one of the easiest ways to understand the book of, Cal of Ephesians is to read the book of Colossians alongside of it. But let's look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. We won't have time to preach this text, but I think we'll get some of the important principles from it. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slavery, but Christ is all and in all. Oh my goodness, I wish we had time to break this down verse by verse. We don't. But let me just remind you of some of these same themes. He begins by saying that we have been raised with Christ and we're not awaiting it. It's already happened. You are seated in the heavenly realm with Christ. And so what does that mean for your life? Seek the things that are above, not the things that are on earth. Live in heaven while you're on earth. And you say, well, what does that mean? And then he gets even more explicit. Well, that means that you have died to your old self. You've been made alive. You live with Christ. So repent of all of the sins that the wrath of God is coming. You repent. Christ is your life. You are receiving life in and through Christ. And he's going to physically raise you one day. And you are seated in the heavenly realms. You have died to yourself. So what does that mean? Don't live the way you used to. It's really that simple. This deep mystery of being united to Christ spiritually and raised and ascended spiritually, it has a very simple application. Don't live the way you used to live when you were dead in your sins. Because you don't belong to that world anymore. You don't belong to that ruler anymore. You are no longer in heaven. Or forgive me, you are no longer in earth. You are in heaven. This is a calling, if you will, to live a new life as we turn back to Ephesians. And this makes sense of so many of other, Paul's other metaphors in the Bible. Some of his other language, for example, he says in Philippians chapter 3, but our citizenship is in heaven. 
And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body into his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. You see how Paul says that your citizenship is in heaven. That's where you're seated. That's where you belong. You are no longer of the world. You're a citizen of heaven, but you're still in the world because we're waiting for Christ to come and renew our bodies. So while you're in the world, don't live like it. You're physically in the world, but spiritually you're in heaven, so walk according to your new citizenship. We are united to Christ who is seated there. So you see how important salvation is. Or forgive me, how important union with Christ is to salvation. Salvation is union with Christ. By the way, we'll talk more about this next week, but before we move on, I, I just want to emphasize one other thing. Part of the reason why I'm being so redundant and, and, and repeating this phrase, union with Christ, union with Christ, so much, is because we, we, we tend to take the true saving message of Christianity but slightly misunderstand it to our detriment. And we love to preach how we're saved by faith in the Christian life. We're saved by faith, by believing in Jesus. And that is true. But what do we under, how do we understand that? My fear is that far too many Christians sort of view uh, going to heaven like this. You die, and then God says, why should I let you into the resurrection? Why should I let you into heaven? And then you hold up your golden ticket. Faith. See? I have faith. I have faith. You said I had to have faith to be saved. Here's my ticket. Here's my faith. But that's not actually quite an accurate metaphor of what it means to be saved by faith. Rather, the golden ticket is not your faith. What is it? Jesus. Jesus is the golden ticket. Jesus is what gets you into heaven. Jesus is what saves you. Where faith comes in, as faith is the only instrument you possess to grab the golden ticket. Faith and faith alone is how you access Christ. But your faith is not what's getting you into heaven. Your head is getting you into heaven. Jesus is getting you into heaven. When you stand before the pearly gates, as they say, you need Christ. That's the golden ticket. And the only way for you to have Christ is by faith. So in that sense, we say faith saves. But it's not your faith that's saving you. It's your union with Christ that's saving you. And faith is how you join to him. Christ is the golden ticket, not your faith. In the eyes of a holy God, even your faith is not that impressive. We have a verse in scripture, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. You see, faith has levels of strength to it. Your faith is not that good. It's not that impressive. It's not that holy. Your faith is not what's saving you. What your faith is grabbing onto is what's saving you. Because what is salvation? In union with Christ. It's Christ communicating his resurrected life and glory and authority to the members of his body. That's what salvation is. And so now we have to finish by asking the next question. Okay, now that we sort of scratch the surface of that deep mystery of what it means to be saved. What does it mean to be saved by grace? Why that qualifier? What does it mean to be saved by grace? Well, there's two ways that Paul teaches us that salvation is of grace. And the first way he teaches us is that salvation is monergistic. Maybe a new word for you. Salvation is monergistic. Point number one, salvation is union with Christ. Point number two, salvation is monergistic. Monergism is a fancy theological term that is essentially just saying that God alone saves you. 
Synergy, synergism, is when two powers come together and they work together to create something. So you and your wife might have synergy together. A nice harmony, a nice communion. You're both putting in work and creating this beautiful masterpiece. Salvation is not synergistic. God doesn't say, listen, I'll put in my end of the bargain. I'll do 50%. You do 50%. Right? And then together we will create this beautiful masterpiece I call union with Christ. I call salvation. No. Salvation is monergistic. There's one power in your salvation. There's one person working. There's only one engine. And that energy is mono, one energy, monergism. You are the passive recipient of your salvation, in other words. You are not the achiever of your salvation. You are not the go-getter. You are not the completer. You are the passive recipient of the powerful grace of God. That's why salvation is of grace. And we see this throughout the text. Look at with me, verses 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Notice there are essentially three actions. There are three action phrases in this text. You are made alive in salvation, you are raised up in salvation, and you are seated in heaven. That's what we've already covered. That's your salvation. Made alive, raised up, seated. Which of those did you do? Did you make yourself alive and then God raised you? Did God make you alive and then you climbed your way up? Did God bring you up there but you had to seat yourself with power and authority? No. The text is very clear. God does all of these things. Even when we were dead in sins, God made us alive and he raised us and he seated us. What does it mean to be saved by grace? It means God does all the work. It means God saves you. He doesn't make you savable. He doesn't help you save yourself. He saves you. That's grace. This is why historically Reformed theologians have found support in this passage for a doctrine that we refer to as irresistible grace. The idea that the grace of God, when it comes upon a sinner to save them, it can't be resisted. When God raises you, you can't say, no thanks. Don't raise me. God simply raises us. To, to use a, a loose analogy, when Jesus walked into Lazarus' tomb, he didn't ask Lazarus' permission to raise him from the dead. Lazarus, are you okay? Do I have your permission to raise you to life? And why didn't he ask him permission? What would Lazarus have said if Jesus asked him, hey buddy, is it okay if I raise you from the dead? What would he have said? Nothing. Why? Because he's dead. Now let me ask you this question. You who once were spiritually dead in your sins, what happens when the Spirit asks your spiritual deafness if it can raise you? You know what you'll do? Nothing. Because God doesn't ask permission to raise dead things from the dead. He raises dead things from the dead. God raised you from the dead. You were dead in your trespasses. You were slaves to Satan. You were perfectly content, perfectly happy to just live your life and follow the course of the world and indulge in your sin. But God, He interrupted your deadness with resurrection power. 
That's called grace. He saved you. But there's another reason that grace saves us in this text. Not only do we know that salvation is by grace because it's monergistic, we know that salvation is by grace because related, it's unmerited. It's unmerited. You did nothing to earn it. A gospel of grace has to be a gospel without merit. You are not, in other words, you are not spiritually resurrected because of your works or because of something good in you. God didn't say, listen, this guy is just great. I got to raise him from the dead. He's just amazing. He didn't see some secret hidden. You know, I, could, I could really use that guy. He's, he's way smarter than those people. He's, he's way more spiritually in tune. This one, I, I need this one on my team. There was nothing in you that caused God, that required God to raise you and seat you with Christ. You did not earn your spiritual resurrection. You did not earn your salvation. And why? Because grace, by definition, has to be unmerited. Merited grace is what we call an oxymoron. It's a term that refutes itself. Merited grace is kind of like a square circle. It, it can't exist. And we know that because Paul says in Romans chapter 11, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. You can't have a works-based salvation and call that gracious. That's a logical contradiction. And we know this even in our daily lives. Your paycheck, for example, is not grace. When your employer gives you your paycheck, they are not being gracious to you. You know why? You earned that. That's not a gift. That's not grace. That's owed. That's called debt. You put in 40 hours a week, your employer owes you something now. That's not grace. It's debt. It's payment. It's merit. And so if we're saved by grace, what does that mean? It's not owed. God did not have to save you. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. God never is ever put into people's debt. Now, how do we know this? How do we know that the text is communicating to us that salvation is not a reward for our good works? Well, we know this through a few ways. First and foremost, because we are directly told the reason why God saved you. And the text actually gives us two answers. And one of those is love. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in love, or forgive me, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Why did God mercifully raise you from the dead? What's the answer? What does the text say? Because he loved you. God's own love for you is what compelled him to show you mercy. It wasn't something you did. The text didn't say because of your faith, he has raised you. It doesn't say because of your works, he has made you alive. Because of your inward spiritual goodness, that spark of goodness in you. No, he loved you. That's what motivated him. It, it wasn't you, something you did. It was a way he was disposed toward you. It was purely out of God's love. Not of, by the way, not out of our response to his love. Just purely his love. Even when we were dead in our sins, we didn't love him back. 
He loved us. In other words, it was not our love for God which caused him to love us and save us. Instead, it was God's love and salvation to us that caused us to love him. It's the other way around. And in case you think I'm not being truthful there, I just want to remind you what the Apostle John famously says in his first epistle. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We love because he first loved us. Why do you love God? Because he first loved you. His love is not a response to your love. Your love is a response to his love. And so we know that grace and salvation is unmerited because it was out of God's love for us that he saved us, not out of our works. We also know because of the word used in verse 4, mercy. Not only does love communicate that grace is unmerited, mercy communicates that grace is unmerited. He says in verse 4, but God being rich in mercy... Mercy is essentially used synonymously with grace in this text. Mercy and grace are essentially the same thing here, which means, again, mercy is by definition unmerited. You cannot merit mercy. If somebody owes you mercy, then it isn't mercy. Again, your paycheck is not mercy. Paul says this elsewhere. He says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It's from Romans 9. Do you see the parallel? Salvation's only two ways. It's human will and human works or mercy, but it can't be both. And what does Ephesians 1 say it is? Human works or mercy? It's mercy. God showed you mercy because he loved you. That's called unmerited salvation. That's called grace. But there's one other reason we know. Another motivation for God saving you, which is not about our works, is found in verse 7. So that, why did he do all this? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, God wanted to save his people in such a way that his kindness would be glorified in every generation. There will never be a time, there will never be a generation where the people of God do not have reason to praise him for his kindness. He is rich in grace and kindness to us and he saved us in such a way that we can't forget that. Because let me ask you this, if salvation was something God owed us because we earned it, would we be logically consistent to call that kindness? Does that really magnify and showcase the kindness of God? I, again, I keep going back to this example. Is your employer, when your employer gives you a paycheck, do you look at your employer and say, oh, how abundantly gracious and kind of you? No. There is no showcase of the kindness of God in that kind of salvation system. It's not kind to pay someone what they deserve. That's not kindness. That's just obligatory. That's just debt. 
So salvation, if it's going to be God's showcase of immeasurable kindness, not just a little bit of kindness, immeasurable, unfathomable, gracious kindness, the only way to make that work is if we are saved entirely unmerited. He just saved sinners. That's what he did. He just loved and saved sinners. That's all. That's the kind of kindness that we are going to sing and preach and talk about for generations and generations to come. And so here is why the gospel is good news to you, brothers and sisters. Because you have been saved by grace. That means that your salvation is the unmerited, powerful working of God. And he does it all in Christ. You have been raised with Christ. You have been seated with Christ. And God displays his kindness to you in Christ. All of God's unmerited, irresistible grace comes to you through your glorious, mysterious union with Christ. So may Christ be all and may we be nothing. May he increase and may we decrease. And may we now be able to turn and sing praises to our loving, merciful Father who has richly shown us his kindness 